HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It is Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. This is the 265th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a legendary master mixologist who is known as the King of Cocktails, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to fight for the things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. This is a quote from the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who very sadly passed away late last week. RBG inspired so many of us with her actions and words of wisdom. She said, be a leader and go after what you want, as she righteously did. She led by example and so adamantly fought for what she believed in to get us to where we are today. Thank you, RBG. You are notorious and will be greatly missed, and we hope we can carry on your fight and your legacy. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Dale DeGroff. 
aka King Cocktail, <laughs> who is credited for reviving bartending as a profession and setting off a cocktail explosion that continues to transform the industry. Dale is a founding partner of the award-winning Beverage Alcohol Resource. He's a founding president, the founding president of the Museum of the American Cocktail, and his industry awards include the 2009 James Beard Wine and Spirits Professional Award, the 2009 Lifetime Achievement Award from Nightclub and Bar Magazine, 2008 Tales of the Cocktail Lifetime Achievement Award, and there's many more. He is the author of two best-selling cocktail books, The Essential, Co- the Essential Cocktail and The Craft of the Cocktail, and he just debuted his latest book, The New Craft Cocktail. The new craft of the cocktail, everything you need to know to think like a master mixologist. So, hi, welcome to the show, Dale. Hi, Sherry. I'm so glad to be on it. And what a great job you have, all those <laughs> interviews. It must have been, it's just fascinating how many well, people you've taken, taking down this road. Thank you. I mean, I'm honored to get to speak with so many leaders in our industry and, and you today. I mean, I've I, I don't know how I've gotten this far along and haven't had you on yet. So um, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. You you are really you are really a legend in our industry. So um, I the only regret, Sherry, is not being in your studio so I could have a great pizza right afterwards. <laughs> I hear you. I, I, I miss that as well. Um, so I'm glad technology at least can bring us together today. Yes. And I, you know, I, 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 I think I probably need like a four hour show to talk with you about everything you've accomplished in your whole career. But um, let's start out a little bit with your background and how you got into bartending and, and what led you eventually to the Rainbow Room. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big story and I'll, I'll try, try to keep it brief. Really, really what, what started the whole thing was when I, I left university and went to New York City on the spur of the moment. And that was huge uh, because it took about 30 seconds to realize that life in the city of New York happens in, in its bars, whether they're in Midtown or in their neighborhood bar or on top of a skyscraper or whatever. Just people, people's apartments were so small and pe- people really tended to drift towards their neighborhood bar. And that's where their extended family was and where they celebrated all their and mourned and did all the things that you do in life. And so I, I, I just was, you know, and I had visited New York a lot. It, although that, th- that moment when you step off a train and you do not have a return trip ticket in your pocket and you're headed toward the Sloan House YMCA is a much different moment than when you go up for the weekend and you're hanging around with your best friend's older brother who owns an ad agency who's going to take you out for a big night in the town. You know, when I stepped off that train that day in 1969 and walked out of the station and looked around, I saw a different New York City than I saw on my last weekend trip. Just massive buildings, you know, and I wanted to know what was going on in all those buildings. And it was awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time. It was just huge. Uh, but I, I, I did find friends quickly. And one of those was, as I said, this gentleman who owned an ad agency called Lois Holland and Calloway with his two partners. And they had an account called Restaurant Associates. And that was some plum account because it was some of the best restaurants in the world at the time. 
And Ron turned into kind of a teacher for his younger brother, my best friend and I, who followed me to New York a year later, and we roomed together for a while because he took us to really fine dining restaurants we, in our wildest imagination, could never have afforded to go to. I'm talking the Four Seasons in the Seagram's Building and the Forum of the Twelve Caesars in Rockefeller Center and La Fonda del Sol in the Time Life Building, where the, where the dinner was more than our rent. <laughs> right. But Ron, uh, of course, was signing checks because these were restaurants on his account. Uh, and he taught us uh, just by by example how to treat bartenders, you know, what to order and why. And, you know, and I, we introduced the foods that we would have never, ever, you know, come across at that moment in our lives. So it was it was an extraordinary education for me to have con- con- considering the future that. The, you know, profession that I ended up in at the time. And I didn't, I didn't know, I was trying to be an actor, Sherry. <laughs> and uh, if yeah. I was smart, I would have gotten a job at a Broadway, you know, theater. But I went and got myself a job at Howard Johnson's in Times Square as a dishwasher, because that's all I could find on short notice and I needed money. <laughs> I remember that, Howard Johnson's. Yeah, that was my was first when Yeah. When... <laughs> I didn't last long there. Then I ended up at a Bible, Gideon Bibles, packing boxes to be mailed off to hotels. And then I did posters around town. I was a moving man. I was a chauffeur. Oh, my God, Sherry, I had so many jobs. And then I went <laughs> up at the ad agency. And that was the best because I got found myself at table with my future mentor, Joe Baum. Oh, wow. So that, that eventually, I know, I mean, I mean, you met him then, but then how... What transpired um, that that you were able to get um, the opportunity to uh, develop his bar menu and work with him? That was that was years later. It was years later. I mean, I I, I went through all those crazy jobs I was talking about, and of course, yeah. I always seemed to have a job somewhere in the restaurant business as a waiter. I, I worked as a waiter for years. I, I worked as a then my first bartending job. Believe it or not, uh, I work. I was working as a waiter in in one of restaurant associates restaurants called Charlio's, which later became a chain restaurant, sadly. But it was it was in Rockefeller Center. It was really special. It was a themed Irish bar, but it was really high end, you know, and had a great bar and a fantastic dining room and beautifully designed. And people would come in just to do tours of the artwork around on the walls because they were all captions and photographs of famous people in history with their captions relating to food and beverage. And it was just a marvelous place. Um, and I, I I got I got my first bartending gig because I had finished my lunch shift and the person who had bought this restaurant from Restaurant Associates, his name was uh, well it doesn't matter what his name was it's not important <laughs> uh, but his daddy was a big shot in the garment industry and gave a lot of money to uh, uh, different politicians and so his son owning this new restaurant in, in, in Rockefeller Center got the gig at Gracie Mansion under the Beam administration to cater all the parties. And so a frantic manager came into the dining room as we were closing out lunch and said, I need a bartender. And I raised my hand and lied <laughs> and said I was a bartender. And she said, get get cleaned up and, you know, come meet me in the back. Got a load of truck, you know. So and that's, by the way, why the regular bartenders, Pat and Mike, who were you know, they were union guys. They didn't have to load trucks and unload them. They had a pretty sweet gig right there behind the bar. They were not interested in this kind of a gig, you know. So I went up to Mike and said, Mike, write me down a bunch of recipes, like maybe 10 on the back of an index card. I'm going up to the mayor's residence. I'm at a 10 bar, you know. He says, Dale, 
Don't worry about it. You know, it's going to be scotch in the rocks or maybe vodka in the rocks, Perrier, Tab, Chardonnay. Don't worry, Dale. Don't worry. I said, please, Mike, please, you know. Well, he was right, of course. I took my little index card and never that night did I make a single thing. Uh, but that night at Gracie Mansion, when Mayor Beam was giving the keys of the city to Rupert Murdoch because he had just bought the New York Post, there I was behind the bar, this little tabletop six foot long, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, and, and I just felt like, like I came, you know, I mean, I don't know how Ali felt when he first went into the ring, but somehow being behind that little made up bar, you know, was, was something really special to me. And I did all the Gracie Mansion parties after that. And, and to give you a postscript to this, fast forward, let's see, that would have been, oh my God, 73 maybe. Fast forward uh, to 98. I don't know how many years later that is when I'm a hot dog bartender up at the Rainbow and I get a call from a, a, a banquet or a specialist party uh, planner fellow friend of mine. He says, hey, Dale, you want a really great gig? Uh, Rupert Murdoch's new wife is going to throw a surprise party for his 70th birthday down in their duplex, you know, Soho loft. And I want you to make specialty drinks for him that's got to be named after his farm in Australia and his friends and stuff like that. I said, yeah, I'm in. So after the surprise was over, Murdoch comes over to the bar. He says, uh, all right, yeah, I see you're the cocktail guy, right? You know? And I said, well, actually, Mr. Murdoch, our fortunes have risen together in this town. <laughs> and I told him the story about being at Gracie Mansion my first day as a bartender. Uh, you got a bit of a kick out of that. Uh, and, uh, he didn't drink much and neither did his friends until after dinner. We, well, after dinner, let me tell you, we didn't leave that space until 8 o'clock the next morning. It was an wow. extraordinary event. Wow. I mean, full, cir full circle. Yeah. Um, but back to Joe, I can tell you that story. It, it came many years later when I, I had gone to Los Angeles uh, on a lark because still trying to be an actor, this would have been 1978, and, and, and but having worked in, you know, Charlie Oates as a, as a service and a regular bartender at that point, uh, you know, having a couple of other bar gigs under my, under my belt, a, a couple of east side joints, awful places to work because you work till four in the morning, you don't get it until seven or eight, you know, you know, those kinds of jobs. And you're just, just crazy behind the bar. And it was, uh, it was an education. And, um, so uh, I, my building went co-op. I couldn't get the insider's price. So I, I said, up yours to the landlord, bought a car, and packed up my girlfriend and my dog, Sally, and headed, hit the road for Los Angeles. Took us three weeks to get there camping, lots of breakdowns. And finally, I got there. And a friend of mine called me and said, Dale, um, you know, they just fired the day guy over at the Bel Air Hotel in Stone Canyon. It's like one of the top hotels in the world. I said, well, in my dreams, but I'll go over there, you know, and I hopped in my 69 Dodge Dart and drove over there and valeted it and walked over the little Swan Pond Bridge right into the bar. It's all it's all bungalows and low. There's no big, big building. You don't walk through a lobby. And I, and I just walked into the bar and sure enough, there's this big, tall guy, an Irishman looking very uncomfortable because he was the executive bartender. And he was not supposed to be there. And I said, so I hear you're hiring for the day shift. And you could tell he, he, he wasn't used to this, you know, uh, uh, there, should, there should have been something before this, a resume, something, but he didn't want to be back behind that bar. Where'd you work? 
I said, in New York at Charlie O's. Now, Charlie O's was pretty famous in those days because it was a Joe Bomb restaurant associate's place, and he'd heard of it. All right. Combine the bar here. Pour me a shot. Maybe a sidecar. Now, in those days, even, even at a classy place like the Bel Air Hotel, to make a sidecar, you pushed a button on the gun and some sour mix came out because that's oh, wow. the way America was in those yeah. days, you know. And he said, come back in the morning and I'll give you a tryout. Black pants, white shirt, we'll supply the tie and the jacket. Well, that led to about five and a half to six years of work of the most extraordinary, wonderful place I've ever worked in. And I have had such a, an amazing uh you know, luck, I don't know, four-leaf clover in my pocket. Every I've gotten the most amazing jobs, starting with Charlie O's and then this place and then the Rainbow Room and all yeah. you know. that. That was a big, big, important moment. So I was there for a long time, and there's some great stories about that place. Then I went back. I, I met my wife out there, Jill, who's an artist, and both of my sons were born in Hollywood Presbyterian. This was a union job. I had insurance, which was pretty cool, you know. And then the steward of the hotel who had moved up to Berkeley, California, was opening a restaurant called Bucci's with his ex-wife, Amelia Bucci, and some other investors. And he and I said I wanted to be a part of it and run the bar and be a partner. And I went up there. But I, I needed to have a job while we're setting this whole thing up. And I was looking for a hotel job because they had insurance. But, of course, nine people had to die, and the, and the list was 150 long to get those jobs. So it occurred to me that this wasn't going to happen. And I got a call from New York from a friend who said, Joe's hiring some new joint called Aurora. Needs a head bartender. If you get back here now, you might get the gig. So I left the kids and I left Jill and I said, I got to do this. And I jumped on a plane and I went back. And I had my interview with Joe and Joe said the famous words, I will never forget. I want a 19th century bar, classic, the golden age of the cocktail. Can you do it? I said, yep. He said, all right. And I, and I want you to go out and find a book called How to Mix Jinx by Jerry Thomas. As soon as the interview was over, I ran over to Fifth Avenue, right into right into the bookstores, <laughs> not realizing that it was written in 1862, of course. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the last thing Joe said to me, because he remembered me, you know, from the yeah. ad agency days. He remembered being at a table with me, and he knew that I knew Ron and how what a good storyteller Ron was and all the stories that went back and forth at those wonderful dinners and that we – and the, and the Sundays that we took part in, there was a drinking club at Charlie O's on Sunday afternoons that we, we were participated in in the season, the winter season. And he said to me in the, in the last thing, Dale, I want you to tell the stories. And then he walked out. Well, <laughs> I get this gig and I'm, 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 I didn't have it, by the way. I'm studying these books, trying to figure out what it is I was supposed to have, you know, what it is he wanted. And I, I got a little help from one of his partners named Michael Whiteman and another one and Michael's wife, Roseanne Gold, who's a wonderful yeah. chef. And Roseanne worked uh, and did the, the small meals menu up at the Rainbow Room afterwards. She was also the chef at Gracie Mansion at the time. But they helped me and tasted my drinks and, and, and they found some books for me. It was amazing. They were just a, a wonderful, wonderful help. And I, I, I didn't quite understand, Sherry, why Joe asked me to do this because we had, it was, a, it was a, Two-star Michelin chef from Paris, with a with a menu that looked like Burgundy, you know, with a with yeah. a, a love for the wines of Burgundy, a big champagne copper bucket at the the head of this horseshoe bar, and I'm just trying to figure out to myself what 
what's the deal with these drinks, you know? And, and about six months in, you know, I've had all these wonderful people with Joe at the banquet right across from the bar, Milton Glazer and Dale Chilhuli, artists and, 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 and restaurateurs and designers. And, and then one day, Benny Goodman pulls up a bar stool and says, I'm waiting for Joe Baum, you know? And I'm like, what? So I, I found Ray Wellington, the wine master. He, he had been one of the cellar rats at, uh, at Windows on the World and with Kevin. And, he, and I said, what's going on, Ray? What are all these people doing here? And Ray said, it's the Rainbow Room thing. I said, what Rainbow Room thing? Well, I hadn't heard anything about it, Sherry, but Joe was one year into a two-year restoration of that beautiful supper club on top of Rockefeller Center in 30 Rock on the top two floors that were occupied, 64 and 65. 64, he had to redo completely because it wasn't part of the original Rainbow Room, and that became a huge fine dining, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, a private dining uh, place, which ended up earning two-thirds of our income every year. And... uh, I thought, oh, my God, I want a piece of this action, you know. And I found Joe, and I said, Mr. Baum, I'm following what you're up to over there at the at Rockefeller Center, and I had an idea for you. What if we, what if we do a menu, classic cocktails from some of the old supper clubs and, and, and wonderful bars in the shadow of that great building, you know, like the Stork Club and the, and the Colony and the Copa. And anyway... He said, yeah, all right, I've done it before, but show me a menu. You know, and he had done it before because he had done damn near everything before. Um, so I put a menu together and he liked it, you know, and then I had to had to go through another interview. Uh, and then three years into Aurora, we opened in 1987. And uh, I, and after that, I, it, it, a lot happened. It, it was a, a long and very interesting experience that really uh, changed yeah. my life in a, in a very positive way. Wow, amazing! I mean, there's there's so much, so much content in there, and 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 the story. And I know, I know you're you're giving the brief version. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, there are so many stories along the way. I, I, as you said, we'd need a few hours to get to those. Yeah. When so when I guess when did the shift in cocktails, like for craft cocktails, really come about, or what um, was it? Was was it a gradual prog, uh, uh, you know, something gradual that you started um, implementing, you know, drinks not using the the soda gun or like when did you? Can you pinpoint a time or was it kind sure. of a menu that you put together with the Rainbow Room? And sure. Then- well, you know what Joe said to me in that first interview I had with him as head head bartender at Aurora was that he wanted classic recipes. He didn't want any. Uh, any mixes of any kind. There wasn't going to be a soda gun behind our bar, by the way. So I needed fresh lemon and lime juice, and I needed to learn how to make drinks with with those things. But as I looked in the old books, I realized that we were sadly lacking in a lot of ingredients. They mentioned several different kinds of bitters, which had gone out with prohibition or shortly thereafter. Uh, there, there were other spirits that uh, were in some of these older co- cocktails, pre-prohibition cocktails that didn't exist anymore. You know, they were gone with prohibition and. Uh, so it was a challenge, um, and I also you have to. Uh, it's so hard to make people understand this. But in 1984, when I was working on this idea, 1984 and early 85, 
there were no cocktail menus in the city of Manhattan, Sherry. I know that sounds impossible to young bartenders today, but in fact, this was not the era of the cocktail at all. Right. You know, this was Scotch on the Rocks, Highballs, Chardonnay. You know, it was that crowd. Martini in Manhattan, yes, absolutely. An occasional sour, but they tasted kind of crummy because you're using something out of the gun that's artificial. So, um, what what? What, what needed to happen was so much, you know, but Joe wanted fresh. He wanted everything real. And that's what I started working on. Um, and that's what led to at the rain room, this ex- exploration of these older cocktails uh, that really in many cases, Sherry hadn't been on a bar since before prohibition and, and some of them after prohibition at some of the finer places around the country, but certainly not in the average run of the mill place. And then when those bartenders died out, even then it'd be by the time the sixties rolled around, you wouldn't find a, a rainbow's fizz anywhere except in new Orleans. You wouldn't find a Sazerac anywhere except in new Orleans. And you wouldn't find a, a between the sheets or a, or any, or a Clover Club, or a, or a, or a Florador, any of these drinks anywhere, let alone, yeah, uh, they, they just didn't exist. I mean, I, my first menu, I have it with me right here at Rainbow. It was too big; I had to take it out of service eight months. And the Algonquin from the old Algonquin uh, Hotel, the Americano Highball, the Between the Sheets, the Bronx Cocktail, the Coffee Cocktail, the Colony, the Flamingo, the Florador, the Jack Rose, the Manhattan, the Margarita, the Moscow Mule, the Negroni, the old. This is 1987. The old fashioned, the Peach Cobbler. The Pink Lady, Planters Punch, Ramos Fizz, Sazerac, Sidecar, Stork Club, Southside, 20th Century. This was stuff nobody had seen. Yeah. You know, most of it anyway. And so it was like, and I got I got 34 bartenders I got to teach how to do this who have never heard of most of these drinks, you know. And when we opened, there was no friends and family. We opened on top of that building to packed houses every night. And I realized my mistake very early on that this menu that I just read you was too long and production was too labor intensive. And we had the bar was four deep all the time. And the bartenders wanted to hang me from the nearest light post. So I went down to Joe's office and I said, Joe, we got to cut this menu down, way down. I got to. I got to get some systems in place here. And this is something I should have done before we opened, but we had never done this stuff before, you know, (laughs) and I I wasn't looking at this the way a chef looked at his menu. I hadn't learned that yet. I learned on the job. I was afraid he was going to fire my ass because the menu cost a fortune and it was designed by Milton Glaser. And I'm now I'm asking him to take it out of service. I'm sure he thought he'd get at least a year out of it, but uh, we did. And he did. And we did set up those systems. And six months in, we started making some of the best cocktails that anybody had ever tasted, you know. And and the draw was so, there were so many draws at the Rainbow Room. We had a, a Broadway and movie clothing designer do 36 different costumes for different parts of the Rainbow Room, going back to things like the Milton, uh, the, the um, Philip Morris costume for the greeters. And I had a Eisenhower jacket, gabardine, tri-colored. You know, there were pastel tails in the dining room and, and, and beautiful tuxedos. It's just so many, you know, amazing costumes. Yeah. And then there was the dishes with tradition, you know, Tornado's Rossini and Baked Alaska and the drinks with tradition, which was equally important. And um, I remember Joe saying to me, says, I want to have some decent proper glassware for our drinks with tradition go over to a place called uh uh miner's designs over on the east side talk to old men 
over there and find out what, what their old catalog has got in it and come back and talk to me. So I'm looking, I go over there and I'm looking through what is their very old catalog from the twenties and thirties. And they said to me when they handed it to me, we don't have any of the molds for those, by the way, if you order any of those glasses, we're going to have to charge a lot of money to make the molds. So you better be wanting to make a lot of them. I said, don't worry. It's the rainbow room. We're going to make a lot of them. So I'm looking through it and I find a drink. I'm in a glass. Well, when I walked in, this is what I said to them. I said, look, did, did you ever watch the Thin Man movies? And they said, yeah, yeah, I watched them. I said, well, remember they drank martinis, right? Nick and Nora drank martinis. And they had those little tiny glasses. They were on a stem and they didn't have a V like today's martini glasses. They had a cup, like a, a, like a uh, it was rounded at the top, not V-shaped. And they said, yeah, it might be in the old catalog. Take a look. And there it was. It was called the Little Martini, Sherry. So I grabbed it and ran up there. I said, this is it, the Little Martini. This is the Nick and Nora glass I'm looking for. And yeah, you may have guessed the ending of this story. We put it on our on our menu, and and uh, we used it for those the 20th century and the Stork Club and the, some of the older older Bronx cocktails. As a matter of fact, the Bronx cocktail was featured in a in a, a magazine called Gastronome, along with a silly drink from a from a bar in Chicago. And they mixed up the two pictures, so the bar in Chicago got credit for our little beautiful glass with tradition and we got slapped with this giant 10 ounce v-shaped martini glass which was not our glass and not our drink you know and i got called down to joe's office for that for that little interview and, and for other reasons also because i didn't know i was being interviewed and i i the magazine <laughs> was the first time i found out about that there was never any fact checking and it was yeah was a very talented writer but at the time she was just a cub reporter named uh oh it just went out of my head uh, it's not important. It is important, but it's not there. Yeah, <laughs> I got really, you know, Joe just really nailed me because I, I answered a question the wrong way, you know, and he threw me out of his office. But it did, it did make me understand how to speak to the press, you know, in superlatives only. <laughs> I, I had mentioned, uh, you know, in the sentence, what we're trying to do here with our beverage program. And when I hit the word trying, George, Joe hit his desk so hard, I jumped out of my chair and he said, try it for students. Get the hell out of my office. <laughs> wow. Well, such an education. I got to tell you, these guys were, let's put it this way. My, Joe and, and the, and the, and the director of the Rainbow Room probably would not make it through H HR in their first interview <laughs> because there were no HR departments in those years. You know, I would have never gotten the job at the Hotel Bel Air if I had to go through an HR department. Yeah, well, it's a different time, but you went on. I mean, you're you went on to influence so many people and and write books and 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 start start the bar program and and do so much from your experiences that has just changed cocktails um and and the whole industry and it is hard to think back about like what was or how what what is today wasn't i think i think yes the younger generation and now you just think it was always like that or that's always exactly, yeah. cocktails yeah. were made and it's it's not true um what but, was the same sherry was the bartenders and the ambiance and and the those bars I mean, the bartenders were wonderful. I mean, they were they, they were storytellers and they were not all of them, but, you know, lots of them. I mean, I had two of them to, to emulate while I was at Charlie O's and, and that didn't change. Bars were still fun, wonderful places to be. Yeah. You know, the, the drinks were good if it was within their within the small 
you know, repertoire. But when you got outside of that, it got a little weird. You know, I, I call it the that's how we make it here era. You know, a guy would walk up to the bar and say, hey, bartender, can you make me a Singapore sling? And of course you said yes. Nobody ever said no. But you go to your other bartender and say, yeah, Singapore sling. It's that one. It's, it's red, right? And it's got uh, juices and rums, right? And you make a drink with juices and rums because that was the way, that was the go-to for those non, you know, drinks you didn't know. And, and then the customer would say, well, you know, bartender, I'm not tasting the gin in the string. So, oh, that's how we make it here. So we called that the that's how we make it here era. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Let, knowledge, you know. Let me ask you um, my question for my last guest. On episode 264, I had on Emily Elise Miller. She's the CEO and founder of Off Limits and the author of Breakfast, the cookbook, and the founder of Breakfast Club. So, of course, her question has to do with breakfast cocktails. Um, she wants to know what's your favorite breakfast cocktail, and if it's if it is a a, a more traditional or classic brunch item or like brunch drink, would you um, then do you have a more unexpected breakfast cocktail from around the world that people may not be as familiar with? Well, both of them are kind of unexpected. Yes, I would go for a Blonde Bloody Mary. Blonde Bloody Mary is, uh, there's a guy in Charleston, South Carolina, who's packaging and selling a yellow tomato Bloody Mary mix, which is totally awesome. And uh, I I would go for that. But if you wanted something non-brunch drink, traditional, I was thinking I would go to the Corpse Reviver number two, <laughs> which is a massively powerful drink, but you know, it was used as a morning drink back in Paris, probably, you know, yeah. in another era. And it was gin, uh, Cointreau, Lillet, fresh lemon juice, shaken until it was icy cold, poured into a small cocktail glass, and then spritzed with a little bit of absinthe, real absinthe. And that was the Corpse Reviver. In other words, wake up drink. <laughs> wow. Sounds serious. Or number two, because there was another <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, we're going to take a little break and we will come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news and we'll have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, To Know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. To Know North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But to know North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% 
reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at JanoneAwayFromHome.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Dale DeGroff, the King Cocktail, who is credited with reviving bartending as a profession. And he has a new book out, The New Craft of the Cocktail, Everything You Need to Know to Think Like a Master Mixologist. So, Dale, this is my speed, speedy round of the show. Um, <laughs> I, I have a speed round game, so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a couple of, of choices to choose from, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. <laughs> oh, chocolate! Okay, there we go. So, um, here's the game. Here we go. Um, eat in or eat out. Oh, eat out. Okay. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? All of the above. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You, you fair to everyone. <laughs> uh, tasting uh, menu or a la carte? Uh, say that again? Tasting menu or a la carte? I think a la carte. Small plates or large plates? Uh, depends. I mean, portions should be large. Plates could be small or large. Okay. I like that. Uh, communal table or chef's counter? Yes. Communal table. Wonderful. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. Caricatures or camera photos of you? Caricature. Yeah, your your wife Jill is extremely talented. I know she does this. I'm like maybe one day I'll get mine. <laughs> ah. well, she's listening in right now. She's probably upstairs painting. I think she is, as a matter of fact. Ah, she's she's, she's awesome. New, or- New Orleans painting. Oh, uh, okay. A few more hotel bars or restaurant bars. Hotel bars. Oh my god, I love it. Ooh. Wasn't sure how you're going to go with that. Um, cheese plate or dessert. Cheese plate. And Manhattan or Brooklyn? Manhattan. Done. Great. Mm-hmm. I'm probably the last person saying Manhattan still, since Brooklyn is the new Manhattan. <laughs> no, but you know, it's interesting because I've, I've, I've had regular uh, choices in this game for a while, and Manhattan or, or Brooklyn, there's been a few people that have thought I was referring to the drinks. Drink, yeah. So, <laughs> we now have the Brooklyn cocktail again, which we had lost for many years. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't, I was thinking maybe you were going to go that way too, but I'm referring more to Burroughs. But um, yeah, gotcha. that is the game. Um, so, industry news I picked out an article on Nation's Restaurant News entitled New York City Indoor Dining Reopening Restrictions Leave Some Restaurants Wondering Is It Worth It? Uh, from 25% capacity restrictions to filtration and, and contact tracing requirements, New York City restaurants have a lot to figure out before reopening on September 30th in, in the next stage of COVID-19 guidance. This was by Joanna Fantosi. So, um, yeah, here in New York, we're getting ready to to be allowed to have indoor dining at 25%, and people are, it's you know, wondering is it is it worth it um, with 
from from everything I know, you know, the margins are so tight with restaurants in as uh, at a hundred percent capacity. So how is how are they going to survive with the twenty five percent? But I, I figured we could, you know, talk a little about this and even what's happening in the what your thoughts are with not just restaurants, but with bars and, and how they are uh, positioning to to get through this time and 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 reopen or, or pivot. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, to begin with, I'm very optimistic. I'm, I'm not pessimistic. A lot of people think things are going to change and be unrecognizable after COVID-19. I don't, I disagree. I mean, to draw a parallel in, in the new book, in the new craft of the cocktail, I have an author's introduction because there's something I didn't get to do back in 2002 when my book was released. It, it was already at the printer in China when 9-11 happened. And I had been, it was on the world the night before on September 10th doing a cocktail uh, class, you know, called Spirits in the Skybox. And tequila was our choice that night. And I was, I had about 35 uh, interactive cocktail folks making drinks with me. And then uh, at the end, some of my friends who were in the class and I went down to the bar and we, we ended up drinking multiple bottles of champagne, having dinner and dancing with a female DJ and then closing the bar that night. September 10th, 2001, 9-11, next morning. And, you know, the hospitality industry in New York City was, well, beyond, not just New York City, but in a lot of places, it was decimated, you know, the way it was in New Orleans after Katrina. It it was non-existent, you know. Everything was shut down in terms of hospitality. You know, but by, by the time 2003 rolled around, New Yorkers just came back with a vengeance. They, they were damned if they were going to let this, these crazy people, you know, put an end to their, to their extraordinary 250 year run, you know, uh, and, and change life in, in this big city. And, and, and hospitality came back gangbusters, you know. Uh, now, this is a much bigger picture. It's worldwide. I mean, this is not New York City. This is big. But we're going to lose a lot of bars. There's no question about it because these are smaller bars and they don't own their buildings and they're working very close to the bone. The profit, the, the, the margins are slim. It's uh, it's going to happen. But these are clever people. They're, they're talented people who opened these bars and, and, and they, they they've done it now. They've had their first bar. And when this thing ends, they're going to do it again because now they're better at it. They, they know how to do it now. They didn't have to, they had to learn that first time around. This time it'll be a little easier to open that place and they'll find a place where they can afford the rent. Maybe they'll relocate to a city where the rents are cheaper or whatever they have to do. They're clever. They'll figure it out. It's going to happen. I mean, we have been gathering around cocktail alcoholic beverages, period, from the dawn of history. And we're not going to stop because of COVID-19. I mean, uh, man has had lots of disasters over the last 3,000 years, 4,000 years, and this is one of them. Uh, you know, the, the first half of the 20th century, we had two world wars, prohibition, the Dust Bowl, you name it, and it just decimated food and beverage in this country in terms of any kind of stylish or 
or, or you know, uh, cocktailing and dining out. And so by the time the 50s rolled around, what did we do? We had the grocery store and TV dinners, you know. Everything was processed and everything was, was canned. And, and we had lost our way completely in this business, you know. And then people like Joe Baum in 1959 and 1960 opens the Four Seasons in La Fonda del Sol, celebration of the foods and the drink of Southern America, South America, Central America. You know, unbelievable things happened in that little a period of time. Joe was one of the one of the sparks, you know, that ignited again that interest. And we started moving away from all this processed and all these convenience foods and back to real food. And, and it happened. There was a culinary revolution in the last 30 years of the 20th century that without that, there would have been no craft cocktail revolution. I write about this in the book too, in the history section, because it was though it was that audience created by chefs going all the way back to Joe in 1959 and 60, created by these people who wanted a new American cuisine. You know, why were all these starred restaurants, French and Italian guys? There's something wrong with that. James Beard was Joe's was Joe's consultant on all the openings that he did from from 1959 right up until till James's death in 1987 and they both shared that vision you know and when they they created an audience these young chefs like Larry Forgione, Alice Waters you can they, they go on and on and on Bobby Flay they created an audience of 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 diners and, and, and Americans in the home and in the restaurants that that were willing to take chances on ethnic foods they were in love with big flavor where suddenly all these ingredients are coming from around the world into our country you know and that audience is the audience that made it possible for us in the craft cocktail movement to move forward into a really culinary style cocktail you know and, and borrowing the techniques and the ingredients from the culinary side of business to do these drinks that these young guys are just excelling in in the new millennium it's a, it's, a, it's an astonishing thing you know so yes, I it's I I like to be optimistic too, and I think we will get through this and see and adjust and survive. And 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 you're right. I was thinking um, earlier stages of this pandemic, uh, being in Manhattan and being around the city when when restaurants um, weren't allowed uh, weren't doing full service outdoor dining yet, but just noticing that. Uh, there were restaurants where they turned the bar around if they could and started serving cocktails, you know, curbside to people because people, as you said, people, people want to gather, people want to be around each other and, and the drink, you know, it brings people together. So um, I, I think uh, we will, we will see, you know, I think it's going to take a little time to get things back to uh, yeah. uh, uh, how it was or what the new, the new, normal or whatever it's going to look like. But um, I like, I like that uh, you have a positive spin on it. And I think that's, that's a good way to look at it. Well, the bartending profession is a profession again, and these are not side jobs. You know, these are people yeah. who are in their life, you know, no, you, we're going to lose some people from the, from the culinary and, and the, and the beverage side of the business. There's no doubt about it. They, they have families, whatever they, they have to make a living. They're going to go into other areas. But a lot of them, I think, who have made it their profession are going to stay. And th this new community, and I use the word community uh, with bartenders, and it's a word I would have never used in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, because there simply was no community among bartenders. You know, this was just a pretty lonesome 
occupation, you know. Right. We didn't gather in teams. There was no bar teams in the 70s and 80s, you know, and 90s. Now there's bar teams. You know, this is a different world we're living in, and it's much more interesting. And, and people are, are taking care of one another in a way that they never have before in this profession. You know, yeah. we think like yeah. Speed Rack and the Helen David Foundation and all the money that big drinks companies are pouring into the United States Bartenders Guild to help these guys get through this. You know, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah, and and as as Tales of the Cocktail is happening right now this week, um, they went virtual, and uh, you know, there's I was on their website. I, I've there's a ton of content um, that's available, and and you know, people are figuring out how to do events or to share information um, online, which is it's great. I've been following. Great. I've been yeah. on it. It's great. I love what they're doing. So, um, well, that's well, great. Um, to stay tuned to see how 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 things progress here in New York and beyond. Um, I'm going to share my solo dining experience, which this week it's at Luke's Lobster Brooklyn Bridge Park. So here's the rundown. The location, 11 Water Street, Brooklyn, New York. New York City, I should say. Um, the concept, uh, sustainable seafood counter serving Maine-style lobster rolls and more. The founder and CEO is Luke Holden, and the C the co-founder and CMO is Ben Koniff, and I met them both a really long time ago when they first opened in the East Village um, in 2009, their first spot. So why did I go? Well, I love a good lobster roll. Uh, my experience. So this is a couple Saturdays ago. I biked over the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a really glorious day. Um, I parked my bike. I walked around a little bit. I was getting hungry, so I found their shack. Uh, I waited in a socially distanced line for about five minutes. Uh, I checked the menu, which was on a, they had a, you could scan it off of a chalkboard board and check it out. And then I ordered up at the window. Then I waited about another five minutes for my name to be called and got my order. And I took it over to the park along the other the other side of the shack, uh, Empire Fulton Ferry Park, and I ate outside on the grass. Uh, so what did I get? Well, I got a lobster roll with six ounces chilled wild-caught lobster. Um, I I debated getting the smaller one, which is four ounces, but it was just $4 more to get the extra meat. So I went for it, and I'd say it was worth it. Um, it came with potato chips, and I also got a bottled water. My take. It was delicious. It's a really great lobster roll. It's got an ample amount of fresh lobster, lightly dressed, perfectly toasted bun, uh, really ideal casual meal. I'd say the, uh, well, the ambiance is it's an outdoor shack. It's near the water by parks in Brooklyn. So it's, uh, it's a very nice way to have a, a little picnic. Uh, perfect for seafood lovers. Uh, interesting tidbit, Luke's proudly works directly with fishermen to handpick their best seafood. Um, so they cut out the middleman um, and and it's worked really well for them. They've now, they have over 30 locations worldwide and um, yeah, in 11 years, they've they're they're everywhere now. They're, they have a, several locations in Japan, which is, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so personal fun fact, afterwards I biked home and this time I went back over the Manhattan Bridge. The cost of my meal was $25. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, of course. Their website is loopslobster.com. Um, so as I'm 
saying this, Dale, I'm wondering what would you pair with a, a lobster roll? <laughs> oh, um, well, there's lots of good Rieslings that would go really nicely with a lobster roll. Oh, okay. Um, Trimbach, you know, some of those Alsatian Rieslings or good California releasing Riesling. I'd love that, you know. As a cocktail-wise, I, 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 there are lots of possibilities also. I think uh, gin uh, sour-style drinks would be wonderful. Uh, Southside, great drink from the 21 Club, which was a, a tall, sparkling gin sour with mint. There you go. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice accompaniment to a lobster roll. Uh, and, and cut through the buttery bun with some some nice sour citrus notes, you know. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Gotcha. That's, uh, yeah, great recommendations there. So it's time for the final question. Uh, my next guest is David Nafeld. He is the executive chef and co-owner of Cafico, which is an Italian taverna, and he also has... Mm. Cafico Elementari, and they're both in San Francisco's Nopa neighborhood. And David also recently launched a, a new podcast called The Main Ingredient. So, Dale, what would you like to ask David? Well, my mom's side of the family are from Calabria, and uh, her uncles all came over. And we kept up all those old Italian traditions. We make soppressata every year. And I, I guess what I would ask him is, does he do any of the foods from Calabria on his menu? Um, that wonderful Southern Italian cuisine that we all love so much uh, in the red sauce world. And the, and the things like soppressata, you know, the, the slaughtering of the pig and using everything from, from the nose to the tail, you know. Uh, that that was my family's experience, and I just wonder if he's explored that that cuisine, that Italian cuisine from Colombia. <laughs> awesome! I will find out. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I look forward to talking with him, seeing what's happening over on the West Coast. And I am so, like, I feel. I wish I had a longer show. I feel badly that we didn't. We didn't get into. Uh, more about your, or really, we didn't really talk about your book, which I have here, and it is gorgeous, and it has so much information in it, and um, I'm I, I I'm I'm just so proud to now own this and 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 be able to refer to it because you are you live up to your your title of King Cocktail. <laughs> well, we had a moment to talk about the opening. The, the history and the, the author's introduction. We talked about it. Yeah. Well, well, but I would have, I would have liked to maybe dive in a little more of like, why, like why, well, the question is like, why now did you, did you feel um, it was time for a revival of the book? Well, most significant why was because Random House wanted to do it. Okay. <laughs> that's a big, that's a big help. No, but I actually didn't in the beginning want to do it. But uh, eventually I came around and I thought it was really a great idea because this was a book that I needed back in 2003 when I was a young bartender in 1974, the original craft. And now I wanted to celebrate with recipes some of my mates in the craft uh, cocktail world. So there are a lot of those recipes in here with their names on them and a little bit of a story that some of them wrote to go along with it. And I, I was happy to be able to, to to show the world what's going on in our business. And uh, 
and lots more, you know, a new glossary, new index, lots of stuff that, that uh, it really needed. And I had a wonderful photographer, Daniel Kruger, uh, just fabulous. Yeah. He so well. And we did all of our shots in two places, Audrey Saunders' Pegu Club and in Kenta Goto's place, Goto, because both of them had great backgrounds. And I'm sad to say that we will not be able to go back to Audrey's wonderful, wonderful bar when COVID is over. I know. To me, the the ultimate craft cocktail bar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sad about that too. She's amazing. Both of those places are amazing. Daniel, I had on my show a long time ago and he's a fabulous photographer. So um, yes, I, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on your whole career. Um, Thank you for sharing your stories with us. I, I feel, you know, you're, 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 you're just, you're Dale DeGroff. I mean, you're like everyone. Well, we'll do this again, Sherry, and I'll just tell stories the whole time. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, the stories. I mean, I know even with uh, celebrity stories you have, or just yeah. I mean, you could. I'm sure you you have a lot. So, um, but thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm honored to know you and get a chance to chat with you. So, um, I wish you much continued success. You too, Sherry, and have fun with your wonderful show. Oh, great. Thank you so much. My guest sure. has been Dale DeGroff. He is the king. He is the king cocktail. Uh, his book is The New Craft of the Cocktail, Everything You Need to Know to Think Like a Master Mixologist. Uh, his websites are kingcocktail.com, and he's also, you can check out beveragealcoholresource.com, and that is something we didn't we didn't really get a chance to talk about, it, but um, that Go to his website, check that out, and follow him on social media at King Cocktail, which is uh, King C O C T C C O C K T L. It's shortened there. Um, and you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify are also ways you can listen. We are there. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Dale and also to his lovely wife, Jill, for helping set this up. I'm Sherry Bayer. Till next week, uh, be safe, be well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.